All right. So we've been doing this series called The Light That Leads Us Home. And the actual title of this message is The Light That Leads Us Home. And so we'll, we've had this all the way through uh, the month of December, the four Sundays of Advent, then this Sunday, and then the following Sunday will be the last uh, in this particular series. And so um, today, as you might have guessed, we're going to talk about light. And um, there's something that's just very comforting about light. You know, when it's really, really dark, it's very reassuring. You know, to actually have that light and to, because um, it, it can, you can get so disoriented, you know, in the dark. And so when light comes and you can kind of see where you are and understand, you know, where you have to go, um, it's just very reassuring. And the thing that's kind of interesting about light is it doesn't really take a lot to make a difference. And there's a, a story that I came across, and this is a story from Todd Hunter, and Todd was a former vineyard pastor, and he also was the national director for a while of the vineyard. And he tells this story when he was actually pastoring the, uh, the vineyard in Anaheim, California. And um, during one of their Sunday services, right in the middle of the service, they had a total blackout. Um, some kind of an automobile accident, the cars had hit a power pole, and it had cut the connection, uh, and so there was no power coming into their building at all. And at that time, in their sanctuary, they had about 3,000 people in a room and another 1,000 children in a children's area that was kind of right behind the sanctuary. All of this now plunged into total blackness. And he said, for whatever reason, of course, the emergency lights didn't come on. <laughs> so there's nothing. And so he was, uh, he was sitting in the very front row and uh, he, he knew he was only about 12 steps away from getting to the door that led to a hallway so he could get around behind. And uh, he was most concerned about the kids. He wanted to get, you know, try to get to them as quickly as possible. But he said the darkness was so overwhelming and so disorienting that he, he literally had trouble you know, going those 12 steps to get to the door. And he said that... Um, when he finally reached the door, he saw that a mom who had a little bitty flashlight on her keychain had, uh, had beat him to the door and was already making her way back to get her kids. And he said that you know, even though her small light didn't really light up that whole hallway, it did reorient it enough that it took the fear away. And he kind of knew where he was and he knew you know, where he had to go. To, uh, to get to the kids. And he said pretty soon there were others that found emergency flashlights that they had in all of their classrooms. And um, others went outside, turned their car lights on, and so they would shine through the windows. And so between all of this, uh, they eventually got all the kids somewhere that was safe. And he said that, uh, you know, this, he spent maybe five or ten minutes dealing with this. And the funny part of the story is he said when he got back and he opens the door to the sanctuary, he says it looked like a 1960s rock concert <laughs> because all of the baby boomers had gotten out their lighters <laughs> and he said they're waving them around as if the Beatles were playing Hey Jude. 
And he says, as funny as it was to kind of remember that, that whole moment, that he could remember even 20 years after the fact, the enormous power that that mom's flashlight had to bring hope and to bring orientation into a seriously unnerving moment. So <clears throat> with that story sort of concerning light fresh in our minds, I want to look at the scripture passage that we have for today, uh, which is from the Gospel of John. Now, if you didn't know, the overarching theme of John's gospel is to tell the reader who Jesus is. That's what he's trying to do with this gospel. Uh, and it's that focus that's what makes John's gospel very distinctive from the other ones. Not that they aren't also in some way trying to tell who Jesus is, but John is very specific in this. And it's one of the reasons why new Christians are, all, are encouraged to read the Gospel of John. Many people think that's a very good place to start, and primarily because of what John's purpose is. He, you know, if you're a new Christian, you may not really know who Jesus is as well as you could. And so John's Gospel is a great uh, place to start because John, in a variety of different ways, is making the point that Jesus is the Son of God. That's his whole purpose in writing the book. He's trying to reveal that. And one of the ways that he does that through the book are what are called the seven I am statements. So there are seven of these statements that Jesus makes within the book of John where he says, I am, and then gives a description of himself. And so today we're going to look at the second one of those, which appears in uh, John's eighth chapter, the 12th verse. And it says... When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. <coughs> Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of light, have the light of life. And that's John 8, 12. Now, there was a lot of mention, if you, you know, just to, what I want to do now is just a few couple of historical notes. Um, the, the Jewish literature that, is, um, that we still have from around that time was very generous with this term, light of the world. Uh, it applies it to Israel, the whole nation, to Jerusalem specifically, to the various patriarchs of the faith, to the Messiah, to God in particular, uh, and even to some famous rabbis and to the law itself. All of those things were at one time or another called the light of the world. The important thing to realize here, though, is that it always refers to something that is very significant to the Jewish faith. Now, there are some authors that set this particular passage uh, right at the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. So if you kind of read, you can pick up some of that. And they, they believe that, you know, as the, the text tells us further in the text, that Jesus was giving this address near the court of women in the temple. And it was near the treasury of the temple. And there, were, there was always a torch lighting ceremony that occurred during this time. And so uh, this was a way to remember the pillar of fire that had led the Israelites out of Egypt. But it would have caused an incredibly bright light to be shining from the temple. 
And so some scholars think that, that that light was just another way that Jesus could use to emphasize what he was just about to say and then in saying that he was the light of the world. And so two days ago, we, we celebrated the birth of this light, right? That's what Christmas was all about. This light that's needed to dispel all the shadows that we have in our path. And so I want to explore a little bit with it, within this single verse, what is it that John really is telling us about the light of the world? And I think the first thing that he points out, and as you would expect with John's gospel and the whole focus of John's gospel is that the light of the world is Jesus. Now I said, you know, at the very beginning, there is something very comforting about light. And that's why we all seek it. You know, when we're, unless we're trying to sleep, we generally don't like to be in the dark. And so we always are trying to, to find ways to, to make it more light. And that's <clears throat> really been true throughout history. Mankind has always sought light or enlightenment in a whole variety of people and places and things. And so sort of along those lines, I, I found an article that, that was kind of interesting, and it's, it was the top 15 ways to achieve spiritual enlightenment. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? So I will reveal these to you now. Uh, meditation in, in various forms was one of the ways that you can achieve a spiritual enlightenment. Prayer, chanting, yoga, the martial arts, fasting, sweat lodges, and physical distress. That sounds like fun. <laughs> Dancing, quaking, and shaking. Pilgrimages, sensory deprivation, another one that sounds like a good time, although better than a near-death experience, which is the next one. Depression and despair, I don't think I'd choose that. Mortification of the flesh, that really doesn't sound so good either. If you think of that scene, if you remember... Um, Hang it. Oh, the Da Vinci Code. Do you remember the guy in the Da Vinci Code that had that, like that whip that he would, you know, and that, that's essentially, there's a sect within Christianity that believes that that is a way to, you know, attain enlightenment, is that you, uh, you know, really harm the flesh to bring the spirit forward. And then last but not least, psychedelic substances. And I don't need a show of hands at this point <laughs> as to how many of you have tried that road to enlightenment. Now, what's kind of interesting to me about all of these different ways to enlightenment um, wasn't really the, the actual ways themselves. But earlier in the article, what the author said was that he essentially lumps Jesus and Buddha and Muhammad and all the others into even Peter because he walked on water and he was looking at that as a, a form of spiritual enlightenment, kind of lumps them all together into this category of enlightened beings. 
Now, you know, you may not agree with me, you may be offended, but what this book says and what I believe is that Jesus is the light, not merely a light, not merely one light among many, the only light. John 1.9 calls him the true light, which gives light to everyone who is coming into the world. And I think it's pretty clear that in declaring himself to be the light, Jesus is claiming divinity. He was clearly claiming to be God. And as C.S. Lewis says, <clears throat> when somebody makes that claim, you know, when they claim to be God, you've got a choice to make as to <clears throat> what to think about that. You can either think they're completely off their rocker, absolutely crazy, or they're telling the truth. I mean, that's kind of it, right? It's one or the other. Tim Keller has an, had an interesting quote that I ran across that said, the founders of every major religion said, I'll show you how to find God. Jesus said, I am God who has come to find you. Big difference. Big difference. And see, at some point, ladies and gentlemen, you have to choose. You have to choose whether or not you believe this book and what it says about Jesus, and you have to believe, you know, is that the truth or not? Now, in order to do that, you have to read it. Now, I know that sounds silly, but you cannot make, you know, that choice based on what somebody else tells you about this. You can't make that choice based on what you think this says. You can't make that choice, as Thomas Jefferson did, by just cutting out the parts of the book that you don't understand. He really did that. His Bible, he, I don't know if he cut it out or lined it out or something, but he took out the parts that he, didn't, he couldn't quite figure out because it didn't make sense to him. He liked a lot of the other things. He didn't really like so much the miracles of Jesus, so he just clipped those out. So when it gets dark in your life, or maybe better yet, before it gets dark in your life, settle the issue for yourself that Jesus is the light that you need and that he brings to everyone who follows him the light of life. Point number two is that the light of the world came to lead everyone. Everyone. Now, as I just indicated, there are some conditions uh, for seeing and knowing the light, and it's right there in the passage. You have to follow Jesus. And so in claiming to be the light of the world, Jesus defined his unique position as the one true light for all people, not just for the Jews. See, even in the book of Isaiah, uh, Isaiah wrote, I, I will also 
give you as a light to the Gentiles, which essentially just means people who are not Jewish, that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. And so when we follow Jesus by accepting him as our Lord and Savior and by obeying what he says to do, that's important too, that's the point at which we are now walking in the light. So we no longer blindly follow our sin. But instead, it's the light that, of Jesus that actually shows us our sin and shows us our need for forgiveness. Guides us along the pathway of life and eventually leads us to eternal life. So it's not just a later thing. So many people are in that, well, I'll, I'll believe later, you know, because that's, you know, when I'm getting ready to die, it really would kind of like to go to heaven, and so I'll look into it then. Well, how many of us know folks that never perhaps reached that point because illness or accident or whatever intervened? The other thing is that over the years I've encountered so many people who believed that they couldn't follow Jesus until they got their act together. Which is kind of amusing, right? When you think about it, the people will say, well, you know, I'm not really living a great life right now. Um, if I had a few months and I could kind of take care of a few things, clean some things up, maybe start behaving a little better, then I'd be interested in, in hearing about the gospel. Well, that's called the gospel of self-sufficiency, right? And if that's all it took, then there's no need for Jesus. But the problem with that whole approach is that you can't get there on your own. Whether you like it, or whether you want to admit it, you need someone to lead you there. See, the founders of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous knew this. It's not some freak coincidence that step one of the 12 steps is to admit that you have a problem that you cannot on your own overcome. And it's also not a big freaky coincidence that step two says that you need to admit that the only way to overcome the problem is with the help of a power greater than your own, which the founders of Alcoholics Anonymous clearly knew to be God, the God of this book. And so the same is true for you. If you want to find the light of life, then you've got to follow the one who came here specifically at Christmas to lead you there. His name is Jesus. Point three is that the light of the world pushes back darkness. Now, as I said before, um, Jesus was speaking uh, in this part of the temple that was known as the treasury, uh, where offerings were collected, but also where they had these huge torches and lamps that were burned to symbolize this pillar of fire that we read about in the book of Exodus, where God appeared as a pillar of fire during the night to lead them 
so that they had something to follow in this pillar of smoke during the day. And so this symbolized that to the Jews while they were at the temple because these huge torches were lit. And some, er some things I read said that it actually really sort of illuminated all of Jerusalem when these things were lit because there were so many of them and they were so bright. And so it was in this context that Jesus calls himself the light of the world. You know, the pillar of fire had always represented to the Jews God's presence, his protection, his guidance. But those flames were almost as dangerous to the Israelites as they were to their enemies. They were always reminded that what it said in Deuteronomy, which is the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Because we no longer really depend very much at all on fire as a source of light, it's easy to miss the connection that Jesus makes between real fire and light. Because in Christ, God became light personified. And it was Jesus that now brought God's presence and his protection and his guidance into the world in a very approachable way. Now God could be known with an intimacy that wasn't possible with a pillar of fire. How well do we know God as a holy fire? How have we allowed Jesus as God's holy light to push back the darkness from our own lives? And if we've done that, if we have allowed God's holy light to so inhabit our lives, have we done so in a way that he can now use us to push back the darkness from the lives of others? Just for a moment, I want you to close your eyes and imagine that you're blind. Okay. Keep them closed. So now that um, you're in that state, let's complete a few basic tasks. All right. I want you to separate your medications. <laughs> I want you to use the correct button on the microwave. And I want you to uh, tell me which side of the street is the correct one to catch a bus on. Take a moment and think about all of the questions that you might have because you can't see. <coughs> all right, you can open your eyes now. Interestingly, there is a nonprofit app that you can put on your phone that allows sighted people to lend their eyes to those with visual impairments through video chat. I think it's pretty remarkable, and I found this video that sort of talks about it. You might wonder how blind people deal with everyday challenges. Well, normally the answer is simple. We're not that different from you. We play music. We go to school. We go to work. You get the picture. 
But sometimes, the simplest things can be difficult, and we need a pair of eyes. Connect to. That's where you come in. Through your smartphone, Be My Eyes connects the blind with sighted people through a live video connection. Simply choose if you need help or want to help by the click of a button. That's a nice picture of you and your family, Caroline. Is it for a present? <sighs> yes, it's a photo for my parents. Thank you. Thank you. you can help just by installing the Be My Eyes app. And we'll notify you when someone needs your help. And if you're in the middle of something, don't worry. Someone else will step in. So, would you care to be my eyes? The Be My Eyes app. Find it in the App Store. Isn't that cool? I had no no idea that that was uh, was there. But I mean, not that I'm the expert in what apps are available. Now, maybe this little video has inspired you to go out and to download that app and to help some people who can't physically see. I mean, that's really all it is. You know, the one that I thought was sort of interesting was the guy had this, you know, had the thing of milk, and he was trying to figure out whether it was good or not. So, you know, he gets on that app, and someone comes on, and so he just puts his camera up by the milk. I guess he probably has to turn it until they can see it. And they were like, no, nah, I wouldn't drink that if I were you. So then he goes and he pours it out in the sink. I mean, it's really pretty fascinating and amazing that, you know, the technology that has now enabled something like that to happen. And if, if you were to choose to do that, that'd be fantastic. You would really be helping someone. But what I hope will also happen is that you might, in, in this video, see a parallel between people who are physically blind and those who are spiritually blind. Because Jesus didn't just come to be the light of the world to a few. He came to be the light of the world to everyone. And now that he has returned, it's up to us. We're the ones that need to be the light for someone else. And so Jesus calls us to be the light of the world to people who are lost in spiritual darkness. In other words, you and I and Christians everywhere are to be the spiritual version of the Be My Eyes app and help those who are really struggling trying to figure out how do I get out of this darkness. Our light needs to shine so that others can see that the light of the world is Jesus. So that they can see that the light of the world came for everybody. And so that they can finally see that that light 
is very capable of pushing back whatever darkness it is that they're engaged in. Amen.